Zeal without knowledge. Let's do it. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothman. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Love Thy Neighbor, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey. I'm joined by co-hosts Zach Narrison, Aaron Duncan. By the way, Zach, I've been waiting to show this to you. What do you guys think of this? Ah, merch, dude. This was made by my wife. I'm holding up for our audience a black water bottle with a picture of the Niebs himself. I actually have a love thy neighbor on it. I have a great merch idea from this chapter, just like last chapter. We got to start compiling these. Yeah. Start putting them together. So my my wife is very, very crafty. um, And she has a little side hustle. It's called uh, the Glitter Pit Incorporated. It's a great name. The Glitter Pit Incorporated. And she may, and it's it's because she does all her crafts in our basement. And so she calls it the the (laughs) Glitter Pit because glitter gets everywhere. But, uh, yeah, so we might be uh, striking a relationship with her to uh, to make us some merch um, in the glitter pit and uh, and and sell it online. So stay tuned for that. But I, I was pretty excited. About this. It looks really cool. It looks really really cool. I posted a picture on Twitter, by the way, just uh, before we started recording. So you guys Any can responses yet? Uh, yeah, we got some we got some likes. I think. Nice. Oh, Josh Malden. Oh, and Eli Valentin, former guests on the show, have seen and liked the new water bottle, the new merch. Now we just need to get that dinosaur shirt. I've heard a rumor surrounding this water bottle that if you drink the liquid that comes from this cup, it gives you the divine perspective on all morality. Yep, yep. you automatically become a, a German American. <laughs> from missouri <laughs> yep so what you're saying is when you drink it you you forget the finiteness and creatureliness of yourself yes yes you, you start to transcend your well you image. hold it in, oh, in dialectical that. harmony that's what you do come on guys so when you drink it you can spell the word dialectic it's basically yep yeah, that's there it you go. There you go. that's that. it i like it anyway all right so we're continuing today with chapter 12 of Beyond Tragedy, one of my favorite chapters in the whole book, maybe because it's it kind of foreshadows more than any chapter so far. It foreshadows Niebuhr's next book, okay, The Nature and Destiny of Man, so much. I mean, this it really is, uh, it hits one of the central arguments of it, um, but it's called Zeal Without Knowledge, and this is taken from a passage uh, in Romans uh zeal without knowledge so aaron you want to get us started with the scripture yes it's from romans chapter 10 verses 1 through 13 and this is the nrsv version yes okay please so um brothers and sisters my heart's desire and prayer to god for them is that they may be saved i can testify that they have zeal for god but it is not enlightened for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from god and seeking to establish their own They have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law 
so that they may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law, that the person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For no one believes with the heart, and so is justified. And one confesses with the mouth, and so is saved. The scripture says, No one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, good. Thanks, Aaron. So we have uh, basically the way this is set up. I, I've uh, taken the liberty of naming the sections in this chapter. Um, we have an one. We have an introduction at the beginning, obviously, and then four sections that follow. So the introduction I have named humanism as religion. Humanism as religion. Uh, part one I've named the zeal of humanism. Part two, humanism as zeal without knowledge. Part three, I labeled the Marxian asterisk. So Mar kind of Mar Marxism, Marxianism doesn't exactly fall under the humanist umbrella, but it still uh, has the same kind of zeal without knowledge thing going on. Um, and then the final section, um, four, the Christian knowledge of the uneasy conscience. Can I start this first introduction with a question to you guys? Yeah. Would that be okay? I, sure. I did find it a bit odd that Niebuhr is calling humanism a religion. It, it made sense later on in this section when he says something to the effect of modernity, since it, it sets its ends as rationality or human or nature, that it ends up worshiping man. So in that sense, I understand why he's calling it a religion. Um, but it really isn't like... It's not an organized yeah. religion. So would you say it'd be better if we use like the term ideology here? or I, I don't think he wants to get trapped in that language. Yeah. I think he wants to draw it into the context of religion so that he can do some like cross-religious examination. Yeah. And he even sets up within humanism some affirmations, some dogmas that humanism has, um, and some important critiques, which every every religion will have some dogmas yep. and some criticisms of what's going on around them. What, I, what are you going to yeah. say, Zach? I'm sorry. Yeah, I would say, I, I'm just from reading this, I get the impression Niebuhr would say you can't really escape religion, period. Right. Like you can't mm -hmm. escape worshipping something. Like I think he would say that that's an imperative of just life like you're going to exalt something to the position of god i mean i know, that and, you know kind of this this is a big argument he makes in nature and destiny is that humans cannot understand themselves without looking at themselves from an outside perspective so without some transcendent governing principle we can't understand who we are and if we can't understand who we are we don't know how to act and we don't know how we fit in this place um we don't know what we are yeah so it does. This homeless disposition that we all have by nature forces us to achieve some higher transcendent understanding 
of who we are. It it creates these stories, these meta narratives yeah. of how we understand ourselves. And that whatever that is, Niebuhr is calling that is religion, and humanism is one of many religions. I totally agree with you guys are saying. And my my thought in asking that question is because someone who may strictly apply to the principles of rationalism or romanticism, this these two big things Niebuhr is trying to attack, could say, well, listen, the reason why Niebuhr says words like the faith of modernity is he's right. It's because modernity, even though it has ambitions, aims, and goals, hasn't yet removed itself from religious modes of thinking. Right. It hasn't uh, transvalu- transvaluated its values completely so we need to be more rational we need more we need it more mm-hmm. so when someone could argue against Nero's point i would think in that direction they said well yeah people have an idea that we're rational but the, the, the issue is that we're still bogged down in myths and dogmas and the more we become rational um then you know we'll get out but of but that is the faith that he's talking about. Well, again, I would agree with you here. And like, binding up everything yeah. in a unified form of reason yeah. that somehow lets us escape the perils of yeah. religion. But, well, but you're creating a new re- religion doing that. Sure. No, I completely agree. I, I just wonder if the language of faith and religion itself could be trapped in a circular sort of argument that someone who is, you know, secular could probably say, well, you know, we need well, more I, secularity. I, well, I think that, and he's going to address that. Yeah, he's he going does. to actually affirm that. He's going to say that that's the good thing that humanism does bring out is we need to be looking at religion critically. Um, but that doesn't exclude humanism. Yeah. Like you are including yourself into that criticism. So what do you do? What is your faith in? Your faith is in reason. Your your yeah. faith is in a lot of these things that are supposedly rescuing you. How does it now put you into more perilous, even, and he calls it more destructive capabilities than even a religious pre-modern view. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm thinking of, when, I, when I'm thinking, so basically, we didn't say this yet, but in this introduction, he's going to be making the argument. And sorry, I normally turn to Zach to, to do this, but we're kind of already um, pre- pretty far into it. But he's basically arguing that humanism is a religion. Uh, what my, or my mind immediately went to is that old humanist hymn, Imagine, by John yeah. Lennon. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, had Niebuhr been alive when this was written, he might have been alive. When did that come out? I wonder. Niebuhr died in 71. Uh, Imagine came out in 1971. Imagine oh came out the same that year irony. that Niebuhr died. That wow. is... See, with the passing of, and tragic with, with Niebuhr's passing after listening to it, stupidity yeah. re-entered the world, you know. <laughs> they sing yeah. that at my graduation at from high school. Oh. oh, I'm sure. But that that is like and the thing is, is like what Niebuhr's gonna say here, there are things that you can I mean that, you can like, empathize with about the song. Yeah. Imagine there's no religion, you know. Uh, ima- imagine that they're they're uh, imagine we're all you know just holding hands and singing kumbaya it's a beautiful sight uh, right i think it's something that niebuhr addresses over and over and over again is that when there's angst people try to come up with these simplistic ways to resolve that angst through like these really simple solutions yes it's like, the, it's like the, the, we talked about it in our text chain about the issue of ecclesial uh, of ecclesial authority you know protestants 
are, I think, better at not just resolving the tension of like, how do we govern ourselves? Whereas Catholics are just like, oh, just let's, we got a pope. You know what I mean? Like, and there's yeah. all sorts of examples of that where we want those simple responses. I would say of- you're exactly right. This is all about, he doesn't, exp- I think he only uses the term easy conscience or uneasy conscience once. But I think this is all about that easy versus uneasy conscience that like the modern views of humanism and Marxism kind of create for us this blanket of security that we're okay. um, And we are not judged by a higher form of righteousness. Yeah, good. So, uh, so basically his argument is that, that humanism basically just substituted the God of nature and reason for the God of revealed religion and Niebuhr's going to be kind of picking that apart. Like, what are the problems? What can we learn from each other kind of thing, uh, which is interesting. Um, revealed religion obviously denied achievements of modern science and historically committed, you know, it, within history committed social injustices. That's a good point. Humanism. Religion has done that. Um, and humanism, as Aaron just mentioned, had hoped that if religious prejudices and superstitions could be overcome, then reason would establish a common humanity, uh, freed of division and conflict and emancipated of tyranny and oppression. That was the quote from straight from Niebuhr. And I mean, that's like verbatim of that old humanist hymn. But I, I do agree with Aaron in the sense that, you know, I, I put on here right? One of the quotes in this first section, he says, the purpose of the modern rationalist is by, is by substituting scientific methods and rational disciplines for authoritarian faiths to unite all men in a common bond of goodwill. And I think that somebody could argue, right? And I, I think I've, we've heard this argued a million times over, that that experiment hasn't actually reached its, whereas, you know, Christianity had a thousand years, you know, more than a thousand years, 1500 years, 1700 years to develop and to, for that experiment, you know, some atheists would argue, well, we had we did the Christian experiment, and let's let's move on, right? It didn't work, right? Right. I think the same could be said. The, the same couldn't be said of you know putting the scientific method into rational disciplines in a replacement of the religious faiths. I think there are some some good evidence for the last hundred years to say that it's a bad experiment. Don't do it, you know. But Precisely. they could argue, hey, it's only been a hundred years. It's only been two hundred years, you know. Well, I think that's why it's Niebuhr. What's important for Niebuhr is the historical examples that he's going to you know, kind of allude to with Marx and also with fascism, um, yeah. that they are very self-destructive and that even with the hopes of like a classless society, this goes into like the last section of the paper, but Marx and company take for granted, number one, that inherent in any society are powerful, those who empower and those who are not in power. So there's already a distinction maybe in a classless society between those who mm-hmm. have power and those don't. And even amongst people who are within the lineage of Marx, the Trotskys and the Lenins, there's going to be in-crowd fighting, which, you know, really gets rid of the universal brotherhood, that tone of, of you know, of those sorts of things. So Yeah, and he gets into this much, much more in the first section. So the, the zeal of humanism. Actually, in this one, he's more kind of giving props a little bit to humanism and why religion should listen to it. Um, because it actually comes you know bearing a pretty important critique to religion for its past um so but it it's carried in with this kind of faith in a humanism is a religion and it's carried in by this kind of faith in a unifying force of human reason um 
And uh, but Niebuhr is going to ultimately argue that's not a, according to knowledge. It's a zeal, not according to knowledge, like the chapter says. Um, but he says that, you know, history has refuted it more completely than any argument could um, experienced by this collision of communism and fascism. So on the one side, we have the blood and soil types uh, who are going up against this universal uh, a, you know, aspect of European life. On the other side, in Niebuhr's time, is being ripped apart by class consciousness. Um, and Niebuhr says that they refuse to recognize any common ground or similar conviction about the nature of man or history of life or destiny. So on the one hand, you have the blood and soil people who want to rip apart uh, the universality of uh, of Europe. And on the other hand, you have the class consciousness trying to rip it apart type of thing. Mm -hmm. So neither side of them are uh, understanding universality on the same terms, um, which is kind of evidence of it, what like within their own frameworks, they can't find it type of thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that does that make sense. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're getting at is the sort of irony behind their claims to universal, like, understanding what constitutes, you know, the future for humanity and also the present condition, which is their own relative talking points or whatever they believe. So their claims of universality and in particularity. Yeah. And... That's why people go to war over that stuff. I, ironically, the more they try yeah. from these different perspectives of retaining or creating a universal, um, the more they lose it. And so what like this is actually going to be a big part of like what the impetus behind nature and destiny is he sees this fracturing across Europe between communism and fascism, a different way of viewing person, uh the loss of agency in both in both uh, fascism and communism, and therefore the the loss of human rights in between both, uh, and he is saying that they are taking different parts of the Christian view that allowed them to arrive at some notion of universality, and they're neglecting another part of it, and yeah. so they are no longer carrying this uneasy conscience at the center of Christianity, which can hold these uh, different parts about what a human being is together in tension and trying to simplify what is human to simple, simplify what is universal. Yeah. And so Niebuhr is just kind of warning us that us leaving kind of a Christian notion of human nature and human destiny is creating more fractures in our very pursuit to create universality. So in other words, what you're saying is that both these two, I guess you could say religions or ideologies, don't appreciate the tension between individual and society. Right. Enough. Yeah. I mean, I think on the one hand, the rationalists obviously lend their attention to the rational side of of, of mm -hmm. human beings. Which I mean, I, 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 my uneasy feeling about that is that leads to a ton of, you know, ethical problems about well, what happens with people who aren't rational or who have no capabilities of being like people who are disabled. Um, but even under romanticism, where the emphasis is on, you know, I guess 
spirit and mm-hmm. feeling and intuition and these sorts of things. tribe tribe it comes down to the same issues altogether so a lot of it is based on this so Niebuhr and Nature and Destiny, I, I think, presents kind of Aristotle's view of human being, of rational animal, as being the path of least resistance. Like, we want to view ourselves on those terms of the rational animal. Mm-hmm. And so we'll prioritize one over the other. It's either the, our rational faculties are trying to rescue our animalistic selves, or animalistic faculties are trying to rescue us from our rationalistic selves. And in both occasions, you lose the self. On the one hand, you get something like communism, which is trying to rescue the animal from its disunity, from the, rescue the animal from its inequalities, and and draw it into some rationalistic structure of unification uh, through through this ideology. The fascists lose the self by equating us more with nature and more with tribe. Okay, so you're either like you're you either lose yourself in the tribe of fascism or you lose yourself in the machinery of communism. But there's no self here anymore. Okay, but what is needed is this internal tension uh, that Niebuhr is going to explain more in Nature and Destiny. Um, Now, he wants to be clear. There are salvageable traits in the humanistic term. Um, It was right, for instance, to oppose, quote, the obscurantism to which an authoritarian religion is inevitably tempted when it seeks to transmute the symbols of its faith into adequate descriptions of detailed historical occurrences. A religion which has discovered the limits of human knowledge does not improve the inadequacies of this knowledge if it seeks to shackle culture by religious dogma. I think it's along the lines of the Niebuhrian critique of hypocrisy mm. that re- religion one of the things that propelled enlightenment and attitudes towards religion is a deep sat- dissatisfaction with the way authority is imposed on civilians and you know the relation between religion and state in these sorts of uh, those sorts of relationships so and it's also something that's taken almost for granted. So what's a justification for your authority? Well, it's because God says so, sort of like that. Yeah. So, you know. Well, actually, when you when you say, though, that it's not about what God says, so even this, what he's addressing here is actually a desire to attach it to history, to say, this is what history says. Yeah. You know, yeah. And this is what this is. If we look at the historical account, this is what it says. And so it's like it's actually drawing authority from a retelling of history and not even I mean, it is connected yeah. to God's authority, but. That what he's criticizing them for is that they want it to be this this detailed description of history, yeah, and that's yeah. what gives it authority. Well, I mean, his, history justifies, yeah, what they already believe, and so it's circular in the law lo- and the logic of it. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're both saying the same thing there. Well, if the we confuse that- Bible for truth, which many of us do, okay, let's be real, uh, and and if we don't like many many of our uh, parishioners do confusing the bible for truth a lot of times we tend to take the next step and think this is truth therefore culture must live by this there's no interpretation needed there's no you know there's no humility there 
and your religious dogmas become hardened into something that suppresses culture yeah, rather than something that encourages it. I, but I think grow. that it, he's very specific, though, here. And you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but he's talking about these, you know, he uses this phrase, detailed historical occurrences or descriptions yep. of detailed historical occurrences. I mean, I can't help but think he's talking about, you know, the the debate about evolution, right? Or, or hmm. something to that, to that degree, right? Because to be an obscurantist, is one who opposes the cultivation or diffusion of knowledge, right? So they're 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 like they're getting in there and they're trying to stop the gears that are grinding, um, yeah. and they're doing that because they want to maintain that view of history, because they need that view of history to maintain their authority, or they think they do. Yeah, that's a good point, and you could also flip it around and do it with like end times people, but like I think like because they tend to do the same thing with history. But Zach, um, I just want to say I'm extremely impressed by your ability to pronounce obscurantism. I just <laughs> did it. Nice. All right. Good. Do you agree, Aaron? I mean, do you, like I don't want to like push back with no. Uh, um, I mean, I I, I kind of get what you're saying. I I, I mean, I, the the full quote is that humanism is opposed to obscurantism, to which an authoritarian religion is inevitably tempted when it seeks to transmute the symbols of faith into adequate descriptions of detailed historical occurrences. That transmutation is obstructs principles that the humanists hold dear. Mm -hmm. Education, freedom or liberty, um, enlightenment, you know, these sorts of things. So, I mean, I don't know exactly what an example of one of those historical detailed historical occurrences would be potentially you could think of like the way the church reacted to galileo yeah might be a way in which we take the bible and transmute that symbol into geocentrism well he uses the example of slavery That's like the one, yeah. like think about this the, there had to be a, a process kind of a shake-up in protestantism to get a, a of how we read scriptures to get us to understand the, the evils of slavery, where we almost had to read scripture back in on itself, uh, because it looks like on a plain reading of the New Testament, it does look like Paul is at least he's not condemning slavery outright. Mm. You know, he's choosing to live within the system and give instruction about how to live in this system, and he's even. Uh, with Philemon, like giving instruction to free this individual slave, but he's not making some universal pronouncement. But later on with the abolitionists, they have to read the concepts of no Jew or Gentile slave or free. They have to read these concepts of uh, of this section of Romans, of uh, neither Jew nor Greek, um, back into our reading of the New Testament uh, and those passages to put a premium on freeing the slave, uh, making that a priority. Um, so an example of somebody, uh, you know, t taking a dogma derived directly from scripture, you can make a, a reasonable leap in saying that slavery is OK because it seems OK to Paul, yeah. you know, and hardening that into a dogma in history. You know, that's a so you don't think what problem. he's talking about here is like the Scopes monkey trial. I mean, I just think immediately when I read this, I thought of. I mean, it's kind of hard to. Well, I mean, he's obviously talking about, as Cliff says, slavery near the end of it. So yeah, he does bring in slavery. Let, let me read that one part. So he says, religious dogmatism, 
This is on 233 in my book. Religious dogmatism not only accentuated intolerance and bigotry, but also sanctioned the social hierarchy of feudal life. It Mm. persuaded men that the fate which made one man master and another slave was God-ordained. It searched the scripture to justify slavery and to maintain serfdom. It gave a false appearance of inexorable destiny to the inequalities of society, which were frequently no more than the consequence of natural and historical accidents of fortune. Thus, it enslaved conscience to the caprices of history. In opposing these tendencies of orthodox religion, the age of reason had the zeal of God. In a sense, the criticisms which it leveled at orthodox religion were in conformity with the Pauline warning, say not in thine heart who shall ascend unto heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above. Orthodox religion, this is a key point, I tweeted this out earlier on the Twitter, on Love Thy Neighbor Twitter, orthodox religion had been tempted to make Christ a human possession in its church monopoly of salvation and to deny brotherhood to those who do not share this possession. So there's this attempt in in history uh, for Christianity to basically enslave Christ to themselves and make Christ only something that you can get from this institution, Mm -hmm. you know? And we did this by way of this very protected and guarded, doctrinally guarded method of salvation. When you say um, this, which gave us then license to other the brother, you know. When you say this is a separate criticism or a separate, because I mean, I'm going to use the word right. I mean, here it comes. He's speaking dialectically, right? In this, and so he's these are positives of humanism. Yes. Wouldn't you say that this is a separate positive than the one from the paragraph before, the talking about the uh, detailed historical occurrences? I think it's still this, hardening christianity into a dogmatism to the point like whether it's doctrine or christ or whatever it's hardening it and 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 imposing it then on culture um to to create a new kind of authoritarianism yeah basically is what's happening you know i I I think they were separate is i think that the first one is talking about a certain problem that humanism really calls out it's the desire to use these historical occurrences um, or, or to take detail to, to take the symbols of its faith and make them historical, uh, concrete, detailed historical occurrences. It's calling that out and exposing that. And then this the second one seems to be that it's calling out this desire of Christianity or, or of um, religious dogmatism to enslave this idea that like or to enclose Christianity off away and, and separate it from the other. Does that make sense? Well, but that still has cultural impact. Yeah, I think if you read it in lines with what we read, was it last week or the week before? So we, Cliff and I, talking about this before we started the pod, but it's um, when Niebuhr says Nietzsche's right about transviving values, he's not saying that Nietzsche is totally right about Christianity. Nietzsche levels a valid critique of European morality. But what Niebuhr goes ahead and says is, well, actually, you know what? The Christian Christian theology gives a better estimation of what human nature actually is. But he says that, yeah, there's going to be judgment in history on the powerful, right? In the same way here, I think what Niebuhr is saying is that the Christian 
church in any of its historical pronouncements is not safe from judgment from without. So humanism, even though it isn't a, a zeal for God, can still pronounce judgments against the church, which are correct, mm-hmm. but may not itself be based in you know, the scriptures themselves, may, right? May, I mean, yeah, maybe not based, but in some ways grounded. Like in some yeah. ways, humanism t- uh, is a furtherance of the Protestant spirit of kind of leveling um authority a leveling authorities and and humanism has a keen sensitivity to idolatry um it can and when i say that i mean like when when you see a lot a lot of the reasons that uh many atheists or agnostics who might otherwise call themselves a humanist a lot of the reasons they might leave the church is because it's become so authoritarian, which is actually a very Christian critique. You know, it's yeah. it's very Christian way of calling out the church. Uh, and a lot of the terminology they would use is hypocrisy because they're not saying they believe it or don't believe it, but I would assume that they probably believe it, that the way that the church is acting is immoral when this happens. They might have received that sensitivity to that morality from the church, but now they're turning it against the church. And so this is a lesson that Niebuhr is saying we can learn from the humanists, that they are using uh, their doctrines as and imposing them as absolutes on society, on culture, and stifling certain creative energies or what have you from it. Uh, it's, you know, creating justifications for slavery. Yeah. And ultimately, it crescendos in uh, hardening the, the boundaries of Christianity to where we can't find our 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 brothers outside of the church but he's saying that this is actually biblical that this critique is biblical from the humanists because he says that we aren't brothers just founded on christ but we are brothers and sisters as founded in creation yeah in god in the image of god in the image of god that's right yeah and that's that was the next point he makes so it's it's a really so Niebuhr's saying there are things that we need to learn from this humanist turn that they are oftentimes right about so then Niebuhr gets into um saying that okay so humanism's right there and arguing that we've got flaws in the church and that that judgment is much needed to be turned right back around on us that's why i always kind of lament by the way like whenever i hear like an atheist leaves the church or or somebody becomes an atheist and leaves the church or somebody becomes an agnostic and leaves the church that always saddens me because many times the church then is losing their best critic the person who can you know, fight for, fight against those authoritarian impulses of the church, which becomes their predominant critique against it once they leave the church. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I yeah, I mean, I, I think that entirely depends on the attitude of the person as well. Yeah, like, if, if they think good faith or not, because there's a lot of people who just outright hate the church. and But maybe for good reason. Sometimes maybe not. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I don't know. That's true. So, but then he, yeah, he, so he says that uh, humanism then makes the mistake of turning, uh, turning to stoicism to extend this commonality and reason. So uh, it makes the opposite mistake of the church and goes to reason and kind of creates a new dogmatism out of it. 
Yeah. The faith that he says, the faith that all men may be of the same mind is an unfortunate illusion. What was that, Zach? Well, can you flesh that out a little bit, how he attaches that to Stoicism? Like, I mean, he attaches it, obviously, Marcus Aurelius would be a Stoic, I believe. Yeah. Um, What's that quote by Marcus Aurelius? uh, He says, hast thou forgotten, said Marcus Aurelius, how closely all men are allied to one another, not of blood or of seed, but of the same mind. Thou hast also forgotten that every man's mind partakes of the deity, and no man can properly call anything his own, for all proceeds from that one who is giver of all life. Yeah, so, and this kind of goes back to a part in the in the introduction that we skipped over, but he critiques August Comte and uh, John Dewey his favorite, some of his favorite people to critique because they have this very positivistic view of rationality. Like the more educated society becomes, the more, the more uh, science progresses, the better we become as a culture, the more moral we become as a culture, the more just we become as a culture. Um, And Niebuhr pokes holes in this and, and makes arguments that, um that it's an illusion to think that all and he gets into this here in a second but it's an illusion to think that all of reason can be unified into the same place so long as we all have creatureliness yeah like we can never quite get there because our own particular interests will ultimately rule even our reason yep i think the the other thing as well is with is a subtle critique of the stoic metaphysics here that is really important it is the way that in stoicism nature is rational and reason itself is just following nature and so one of the things that um i think later on Niebuhr is going to take is there's a pantheism contained within like modern romanticism and whatnot and where does that lead ethically well it leads to you know the particularizing of our own rational constructions namely uh what we think is best for our lives and our country so we can say well it's it's so it's natural to us because we're using our reason as part of our nature to do the same and what it what does it end up with well it ends up with second world war and Mm -hmm. uh, things like that that's right that makes sense yeah and he gives a philosophical backing for this um and this this is all like nature and destiny like this is a big thing that he goes through he uh, i'll share a quote he says having been given a measure of freedom in their reason and imagination so you would think that like you go to dewey or Comte. Just add reason to culture and bada bing, bada boom. We're we're progressing into utopia and everything will be just fine. But but Niebuhr says, actually, when you add reason, you add freedom. And let's see where this goes. He says, having been given a measure of freedom in their reason and imaginations, they cannot take their finiteness and temporal limitations for granted as animals do. Their animal nature confronts them with a common fate of mortality and their human nature transmutes this fate, no matter how inexorable, into an occasion for fear, grief, and sorrow. So no matter what, all reason ends in some kind of anxiety. This is the Kierkegaard in them. It, it will end in some realization of your mortality, the fact you're going to die, your own limitations, things like this. And that's going to lead into fear. Okay, so actually, the more you know, the more fearful you can become. 
you know, I, I don't, I, there's gotta be, by the way, some correlation between intelligence and anxiety. Uh, like the, the more, you know, the more, the more you can be afraid of, you know, um, I got to imagine, man, if I became a medical doctor, I would probably be a basket case because I'd be checking over symptoms all the time. Like, oh my gosh, could this be cancer? Could this be this, that, or the other? Because the more, you know, the more you can turn that reason into a fear. And we all know what fear and anxiety does to us humans. Right. And he goes on and says their insertion, this fear, anxiety, sorrow, their insertion into nature divides them according to accidents of geography. Their freedom from nature makes their conscience uneasy in these divisions. So, so by nature, these divisions come about from reason and from fear, from the other, and etc. And you know, what he'll quote down, just a few paragraphs down, is that a non-Christian humanism makes human reason god and there's also something really interesting in this is in that when we think inadvertently that we are we are god or our human reason is god we have this sort of expectation and optimism about what we can achieve Mm -hmm. but then we begin to have those anxieties those moments where we realize maybe we can't do all that but what does that make us do it makes us press on further right tries to put you know, pedal to the gas and start pushing it down and trying to go faster and faster, which leads to just self-destruction. That's why he reduces so much of this to anxiety, like anxiety being the central feature of human nature. Uh, this misunderstanding about who we are, we're constantly trying to throw ourselves into these simplistic narratives about ourselves. And the more we see that these narratives don't pan out, like positivism, Marxism, whatever, the the more we realize these things don't pan out, it sends us in one or t- of two directions, doubling down, like the rationalists, double, just keep on going, like the communists, keep on going, like to their own detriment, or regress, like, like the romantics, regress from society, that path was awful, so we'll create a new narrative we'll fling ourselves into. But both ways, you're simplifying the self. You no longer have an uneasy conscience, but very easy conscience because you've absorbed yourself into the tribe. You don't need to have, like, the, the you aren't judged by your tribe. You're one with the tribe. Uh, anything in nature, if you if you presume that you are just natural and that's all there is, there's no complicity there. Any form of evil is just a natural defect. You know, you are absolved. You are free from any complicity. You are not responsible. If you fling yourself into the positivistic Marxist type of narrative, then you lack selfhood. You lack you lack that capacity for uh, self-correction and self-awareness because you have to double down, keep on believing in this narrative and you lose that uneasy conscience either way you lose that uh, you you lose that complexity in the simplicity of these narratives what do you think zach the um i'm not sure how you're bringing these two things together in terms of this how the simplicity of the narrative do you think that that is really what he's getting at in terms of simplicity or do you think this has to do with pride i guess yes both Both, yeah simplicity leads to pride So he's he said elsewhere that kind of the root cause of self righteousness is an over overly simplified view of self. Okay. You know? Okay. Okay. So like, simplicity and pride tend to kind of go tandem hand in hand. Yeah. 
Yeah, like think about it this way, like um, a lot of the Marxists viewed human nature so simply, so simply that we could just kind of correct human nature like a switch almost to rescue us from our animalistic drives and to place us in this new realm of equality. Uh, But you can't get rid of human selfishness that easy. You know, we're, we're way too complex to just absorb into that system that's way too simplified i think Uh, simply he's talking about as well is just overlooking brute facts mm -hmm. like the communists just and the romantics just overlook things that if they i think if if they paid attention more would be simply to say maybe we're wrong Mm -hmm. but they're a lot of them are unwilling to get rid of the simplicity of the argument because it gives them a good sense of I guess belonging, some mm-hmm. sort of identity like that. So the the so, two temptations yeah. that we have is to either go ahead, Zach. I'm sorry. Well, do you so do you, so do you think okay, so I'm just trying to like figure out the error, you know what I mean? Because I think the error that Niebuhr is trying to expose is really just the I mean it's it, it you can arrive at it however you want, but the real error seems to be that it, this arrival at a unifying principle which is based in our temporal self, in our simple in our human flesh you could just say yeah. it, like the, the marxist wants to unify around um in our illusions yeah yeah it, it's it's just basically it's the fact that they try to unify around something other than the righteousness of god right isn't that yeah. kind of the so you could arrive at that through simplicity through pride through however but it's anytime somebody seems to lock themselves down on these sort of like human ideas you know what i mean that tends to be and especially when they commit themselves very religiously to them that tends to have really negative effects, right? Isn't that kind of like the underlying sin of this? Yes, big time. The reason that I keep on going back to simplicity is because this this is the language he uses connected to uh, uneasy and easy conscience, Mm -hmm. is that the easy conscience comes from these simple solutions to problems where I'm fine if I just do this, you know? Uh, think of tribalism like that like as long as I'm just with the tribe that kind of gives me license to not think critically about the tribe I'm just a part of the tribe but there are broader issues of like international politics ethical issues I mean metaphysical issues there's there's so many things that we just take take for granted within just those beliefs and he's saying Christianity captures the complexity of human nature by not identifying us as a rational animal but as the imago dei which we can sin in our rational faculties and we can sin in our creaturely faculties we can sin in both directions and we can do good in both directions so we're more ambiguous than what these simple uh narratives in society tell us about about ourselves if we really wanted to simplify this down, could we say, and I'm just putting this out there, could we say that the, really the failure is to think dialectically? Right? Yeah, I think failure so. And really, actually, one of the really interesting things about this sermon is that you can really see, in my opinion, you can really see the dialogue, dialectical shape of it. Um, it's very apparent. Like, it's very, mm-hmm. if you know what that is, you're like, you read this and you're like, okay, like he's trying, you know, like, here's the positives, here's the negatives. Boom. Um, but so really, I mean, we could say of this, what he's getting at is that idea that it's when people stop thinking dialectically, it can have really detrimental effects. That's right. That's why. And, and, and he's not even talking about myth. Okay. Like 
myths can help us generate this and understand this more clearly. So he's going to go to Genesis one and three to kind of set this up as a framework of thinking about it. But in nature and destiny, he actually starts from the ground up and he starts from this very real impossible question. Who are we? What am I? As soon as I start trying to answer that question, I involve myself in more complexities that make it even more difficult. I want to view myself as just this rational thing that I can just kind of plug into a computer and make sense of things. I can just plug culture into a, an ideology and everything makes sense. That's one way. Uh, but that obscures the creatureliness of us. We also will try to jump the other way and try to plug in our natural understanding of the world, try to plug us into kind of a natural computer, if you will. And uh, that will make sense of us. But this isn't some two-layered event, he says. Yeah. And so all of the Christian view, he argues in Nature and Destiny, is grounded on this one single unanswerable question or this one single vexation that humans are a problem unto themselves. No matter what, no matter which way you turn, you are a problem unto yourself. You can't just fling yourself into a simple system and expect a, a utopia. Can I read a, a quote real quick? I think that actually kind of yeah brings out what you're saying. It's later in the chapter. It's near the end of section two. Um, but I'll read this paragraph because it brings in race and sex. And I think this kind of answers your thing. So let me know what you think about this. Act. It is just in the relation of human reason to nature in which the very evil arises, which modern culture hoped to destroy so easily by extending the force of reason insofar as human reason really frees the human spirit from the necessities and contingencies of nature, it creates the possibilities of moral action. Insofar as this emancipation is never complete and rationality never disincarnate, it accentuates the disharmonies of nature. Thus the same human reason, which on the one hand regards differences of races as accidents of nature, as contingencies to be discounted and defied in the name of rational brotherhood, maybe think of like colorblindness, I guess, right mm -hmm. there. Um, going back to the quote, it also gives these differences a spiritual significance, which they do not have in nature. Mm. Race pride and prejudice are just as much the fruits of rational freedom as interracial, as is interracial brotherhood. Likewise, the same reason which challenges natural impulses and necessities in the interest of a higher good can raise the very impulses into the semblance of an ultimate good. Sex, sexual impulse can be sublimated and channeled in human behavior while it, is while it is a fixed element in animal life. But sex may also become the perverse center of human interest and the source of disharmonies unknown in animal behavior so basically what Niebuhr is saying there is that when you have these concepts they can easily sway to both different mm -hmm. sides right? and we can't just say that oh this is sex is just nature or uh building a shelter is just a natural thing or getting food is just a natural thing yeah. but our it's always tinged by our 
rational faculties and our creativity. Humans are those creatures that don't just build shelter, but we do it creatively with our imaginations and and fix it up and decorate it. We aren't those we aren't we are those types of animals that don't just hunt our food, yeah. but we strategize. Yeah. So there we are actually a unity. There is no there's no divide between our rational faculties and animalistic faculties. They're actually yeah. a unity that he finds in the Imago Dei. But what we so because this freedom is always infused in our nature, then that creates an indeterminate amount of ways that we can use our freedom towards both sin and goodness. So we can't just we can't just demonize our animalistic side. We can't just demonize our rationalistic side, but we're forever caught in this unending tension between figuring out what we are. And he would say that the most instructive doctrines are Imago Dei and Original Sin mm -hmm. the, and the way that they complement one another, um, that uh, that we are capable of goodness in, as Imago Dei in both our creatureliness and our rationalistic faculties. But if you look at this story of the garden, we are capable of pride, which is a, a transcendent faculty. It's like a rationalistic type of faculty. It's a going above nature uh, type of direction. And what he would call sensuality, which would be kind of the blaming other things, blaming the nature. It was the woman you gave me, you know, that type of thing. Uh, so it goes in both directions. So this is all like real, like if you're losing it, listeners, uh, I'm sorry, but the main thing here is just that we are a problem unto ourselves and we find ways to sin no matter what side of the spectrum we're on, and mm -hmm. either in our reason or in our nature, no matter what. Yeah. Yeah, and one of these days we'll get into nature and destiny and he gets into this a whole lot more. Well, I think one of the things is he uses a lot of words to say something that you could probably say less words. Right? I don't, you, you might think that. Well, boy, sorry, Dude, sorry. I've been rereading like my chapter from my my dissertation on this that tries to capture his anthropology taken from nature and destiny and a chapter like this. I've been, and so I like read it into um, my computer and I've been like listening to it over and over because I want to eventually write a book on this. And I'm having a hard time simplifying a lot of this because it, it, it really is like, I guess I just kind of did, but it doesn't get into all the facets of how complex we actually are. You know, um, it gets it, it's also uh, free, freedom and finiteness, transcendence and contingency, necessity. And like there are so many parts of uh, there are so many dialectics just by existing that we have. Uh, it's incredible. There's a tension between our animalistic side and our rational side. But they're all unified. Our it, our animal like it's all. Yeah. It's there's only a tension between them because we can't see ourselves from a higher center that gives us a unified meaning. And maybe because there's things you want to accomplish that are difficult to accomplish if you maintain if those are both true, and they are both true. But because they're, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think what he's, I mean, we're stuck in this because we're trying to attain something. It's like I would think of this and tell me if I'm wrong, but um, I mean, I take ADHD medicine, and part of the reason I take ADHD medicine is, you know, I live in a, I live in the West and we, uh, and I had to sit through classrooms where the, the, I would say the more impulsive side of me, you could say, had needed to, 
sit in a classroom that was geared it was geared towards a certain goal and to accomplish that goal i needed to i need I then i then needed to take that medication in another context it wouldn't be as big of a problem because that impulsiveness might actually be beneficial right in the right environment but because of the goals of society there's a tension between my impulsive side you could say and my rational thinking side you know what well, i mean i wouldn't and, say that it's necessarily just because of society but you can admit that there are good things and bad things about right. that impulse impulsivity right yeah. yeah uh but the same is true on the other end of the spectrum too and this is part of the feminist critique that this needs to be brought out more but there's the side of wanting to escape into nature as well and not exert ourselves so oh, yeah. because yeah, we lot. find ourselves in this tension between nature and transcendence uh pride is that thing that we always want to escape into transcendence and that seems like the dominant sin of the fall but there's actually this other side of trying to escape responsibility right uh of both adam and eve of trying to blame it on the woman or the or the serpent trying to blame it on god um trying to externalize that responsibility as if they are not moral agents and trying to treat themselves as if they are, they don't have agency and so in but both directions uh we sin i i would say that part of this 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 the goal that really represents a lot of these similar a lot of these similar views that he's giving a standpoint of here is that they're all i would say positivists they're moving they're moving they're trying to move in a progressive direction where humans trans then can transcend that problem they can resolve no I, there's a regressive side too though there's a side of trying to go back to nature to to not transcend nature but become one with nature mm -hmm. and there's sin in that as well that's that's what so i was trying to explain by the i'm not responsible for things i can sit on the sideline i can go out to my cabin at walden you know and i can sit on the sideline and or i can escape to my monastery that's still a, that's still a, the sin of sensuality of not using my transcendent faculties to do good so that would be in in the case of what he's arguing here. That would be the case of like fascism or Nietzsche. Would have fascism or Nietzsche. That is one expression of romanticism. So like he separates them into kind of Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. And Schopenhauer is the or you know Rousseau of kind of the escapism into nature and exalting so nature and absorbing ourselves into nature. But there's the Nietzschean type that it, that will find its ultimate expression in a Hitlerian type of tribalism type of thing of a uh, super race exerting itself over yeah. somebody else. But that that is comprised, though, by losing yourself in the tribe, you know, because that because the articulation here goes that we are by nature tribal. We are social by nature. So we need to escape the 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 you know metropolitan the cosmopolitans you know and escape like these these mixed areas whatever and come back to our tribe you know yeah. that's where we find that is the most natural expression of humankind that's us at our, at our greatest they would say their goal you know? in the sense is still to resolve that angst it's the same as yes it's always body. trying to resolve the angst yeah but but christianity puts angst right at the center. We are born in an anxious state. We are born, what does Augustine say? I can't find myself until I find myself in you oh, or whatever. Yeah. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So at the center of Christianity is this uneasy conscience that we can't be filled by what we are, but by what we are right now. Um, we so, must be filled by God. Could you say that it's 
all these all these movements that he's addressing are trying to resolve the angst between our rational side and our nature or the natural side that's then, that is a primary dialectic of nature but there's there's also a bunch of other dialectics as well that i mentioned a little bit ago but nature and rationalism he he says in nature and destiny that nature and reason are the two gods of modern man so those are the predominant ones that we chase after they're trying and so that you have that dialectic as you're saying and they're all trying to resolve the angst between those two through a unifying principle or through a unifying idea it doesn't matter if it's going back to nature or if it's education or if it's in Marx's idea, right? The um, um, what's what's the I don't remember the Marxian one. They're all trying to unif- unify humanity in one way or another. Um, That's right. Into one of the two. Yeah. So like the rationalist wants to unify nature into rationalism. The naturalist wants to unify reason into naturalism. Does that make sense? Yeah. But it's not trying to maintain them in proper tension. And the only way to do that is through uh, a a single governing principle. Now, here's the tricky thing. And this is where we can circle back around to the first chapter of Beyond Tragedy, because he's saying that we have to deceive in order to tell the truth. So the problem you run into describing this is that if you reason is governed by one of the two poles, our rationality comes with its own reason that will paint nature in a certain way, right? And so to use that reason, you will always get to absorbing nature into reason. You flip it around, the naturalistic, the naturalism, the naturalists have their own reason that will absorb rationality into its reason, you know, but we have to deceive ourselves in order to tell the truth. We can't ascribe to any form of reason lest we prioritize one in an attempt to capture the other. I don't know if this is making sense. So we have to use myth. We have to use something that is on its on the surface level irrational to both the rationalists and naturalists. Well, and coming back to our in order to get to the truth, our hymn of humanism, right? Imagine, right? There's an apparent like it's obvious when you when people sing it. It's just like blatantly obvious. There's a myth here. People are like deceiving themselves. This is not cheap. It is overly simplistic. But people think we should buy into that myth. They think we should really buy into that and really believe what. Um, but that's notice great... he's only asking us to imagine i mean he's not asking us to actually do it <laughs> well, maybe it's... because he knows we can't it's prophetic imagination yeah in his world i just think that you know i don't know if we're there yet but the way that <laughs> where this all came together for me was in chapter four section four when yeah. he says uh if it's okay if i can read that he says yeah let's just go there It is interesting to note that the Pauline gospel has a universalism of its own. There is no difference, declares St. Paul, between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is rich unto all that call upon him. I was like, man, that he he was he he knew he was going here. You know, he knew that this is where he was going to this passage. Because that's in some ways, it seems like that's what all of these movements are trying to achieve is what is being declared in the Bible, like in Scripture in this way. Right. This this I mean, not to be too positive here, but to say that there's there's a, there is a desire in all of these movements, a positive desire to achieve this harmony between the Jew and the Greek. But he's kind of broken down why they all fail in that regard, I guess. Um, but the important part here is he's saying that they all have zeal. Yeah. But they don't have knowledge. They don't recognize um, their own limitations. 
And he says that the Marxists make this mistake because they understand, like the Marxists at least understand the precariousness of reason. They at least get that part. But they still try to establish a form of universality, universalism here on this earth, where there's a universal brotherhood, uh, which can't be attained. They're all missing the transcendence of God as judge and creator um, that places enough of a distance there between our own righteousness um, and reality, because we always want to turn our own righteousness into self-righteousness. That's what happens without God is we turn righteousness into self-righteousness. Yeah. So I just thought it was really, it was really, I mean, this is a really well done sermon in that regard. Because it really, the angst that is built up the whole time is it's like, even though the, some of these movements have done it in the most nefarious ways possible, they have been seeking to somehow unify humanity. They've done it in the most, not nefarious, but just egregious ways, you could say. Um, but they are they are kind of trying to say that there is no difference between Jew and Greek. Just it's in a, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I love this point that he makes where he says basically Paul is introducing universalism. Yeah. But it's fashioned out of the brotherhood of human need mm. and not human achievement. Yeah. So the the universalism that Paul brings is this understanding of how little we are and how much we are how much we require of God our daily mm. bread. You know, rather than coming in and oh, we got back to nature, dang it! And we're so we're let's take over the world. Um, there is an automatic disposition in the Christian form of universalism, where yes, we are. And by the way, when we say universalism, we need we mean universal brotherhood, but it needs to be fashioned from a universal sense of human need. Yeah, you know. Yeah, That's good. Yeah. I mean, it really is. Now. <laughs> Bringing it back around, I guess, to like the zeal without knowledge. What does this mean to Niebuhr? It means that they have some good in, good intentions or good passion in the sense mm-hmm. that they're seeking to unify or even good like, critiques sometimes. Yeah, good critiques. There, there is there are elements where they're they're zealous after these, in part, good principles or ideas, but when they make them ultimate principles, that's often where they go astray. Yeah, and I think it's, it's a lack of revelation. I mean, I think this is the most, I would say, like calvinistic sermon i mean not calvinistic but just like reformed theology sermon i've read by niebuhr and that is that he's basically or you could even say bartin right you don't have the revelation of christ you know the, the revelation of christ is what's going to at least that's the impression i was getting from this right uh for the same lord is rich unto all that call upon his name you know what i mean like he's he's getting at that that there is a revelation from god which allows us to recognize our human need um, I think that's what he's Calvinistic. I, I I get reformed. Maybe not Calvinist. I was just Bart. Bart makes me like, I don't know. Maybe that's what Bart's all about. He would even say that. He, he is, but Niebuhr's kind of a different beast. Um, he's not going about it in the top uh, top down theology that Bart would obviously. Well, but well, I guess what I'm saying is like, this reminds me a lot of when Bart people would criticize Bart of saying that everything comes down to the Christ principle. Well, I see a little bit of that here. I see a little bit of that in this universal need. Well, universal need for what? You know what I mean? And it's like for Christ. You know, and I think that that is, 
he's not necessarily explicitly saying like Bart would. He doesn't come out and just say, I mean, I could be wrong here, but he doesn't come out and just say, well, everybody's looking for this universal principle and everybody's striving to resolve this angst. And the resolution of that angst is is found in the uh, in the Christ. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's the appropriate way to put it. The universal angst, that is very, very important. The uneasy conscience is the best way to put it, that you're never quite at home here. Uh, and we long await the universalizing Christ that will bring about the brotherhood of uh, of all. Um, now, something that that I keep looking over. Aaron brought this up about Nietzsche because we talked about this a little bit before. When we were talking about Nietzsche a couple of weeks ago, something that I failed to mention that like when I listened to it again, I wish that I brought up is what Aaron had said, that both Niebuhr and Nietzsche are saying that transvaluation occurred. The, the transvaluation of values that Jesus brought, that definitely occurred. But, but Niebuhr was actually circling around and saying, but it's actually true. Christianity is actually true. So it's not like we're not just like making myths out here and just choosing to believe like in a dream state that, yeah. yo, someday the, the, the weak will become strong. No, that actually happens in history. Christianity is telling a truth there. And it, and our hope in the final event is uh, of bringing that about actually prepares us for those moments in history that it does happen. So Christianity is more true, actually, uh, than just this natural thing. So it's not that our myths are different and we like them more uh, than the will to power. So deal with it. It's actually true that the judgment of God comes in history for the proud, the rich, the mighty, and the noble. And so, same is going on in this chapter. He's calling all those other ideologies, rationalism, naturalism, Marxism, these ideologies have zeal, but they do not have knowledge, which is kind of might be blasphemy to one of them. How dare you say we're more true than Christianity, but he's saying actually tr Christianity gets this part right. You know, they don't have the knowledge. These other views don't have the knowledge of human nature and human destiny, but Christianity actually does have a better grasp on reality than they do because it doesn't necessarily it, it doesn't unnecessarily simplify everything and create these visions of grandeur that we could somehow create this universal brotherhood. But Christianity is real about sin and real about the uneasy conscience that we all need to be having. It's not just fairyland myths here. This is a real life ideology that we need to maintain. And I, uh, I, think, and I think he's freaking out about this, man. Like, I think this he right now, this chapter is the moment he's brewing over nature and destiny of man. He sees Hitler rising. He's he's witnessed Stalin rising. He know he's seen um, 1917, 1919, like uh, revolts in, in Germany and Russia. He's seen all this stuff play out. And well, he and he knows people are missing human nature and it's and it's going to get leveled if we're not careful. And this is his prophetic voice shining through right here that we need to reexamine the Christian myth or we're heading for destruction. Well, I wonder also if, you know, just thinking really practically, as I think about Christianity and I think about the church and I think about people in the church, I, I think of eschatology and people sometimes wonder like, what is the purpose of this? Why do we even talk about it? It's like, yeah, it's like a hope, like God's coming someday to like save us and everything. But I think actually one of the most practical ways that eschatology is helpful is to say that this, these things that you're trying to resolve here and now, these universal principles, you should always be skeptical of them. You should always be 
mm -hmm. uh, aware that there will be a completion of history where this this angst is resolved. But you should always hold anyone's unifi unifying principle, anyone's unifying idea with a certain skepticism, even your own, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. in terms of you should approach that with humility. And so that's one way that eschatology could be really actually very helpful in the sense that, hey, it, we haven't we haven't reached the end of history. Take everything with a grain of salt. Nothing is nothing is divine except for the, the divine, even our tribe, our nation, our ideology, even my love for freaking Niebuhr. I need to keep that at an arm's length because like well, you can't treat you. that. It's very hard for me. It's a temptation. Uh, we need to keep it at an arm's length. Kind of like a water bottle that has his face on it that just sits right next to you on your desk. Got to keep that at an arm's well, length. Yeah, it, it is at an arm's length. Pra practically speaking, I would say that it, it should encourage all Christians, I think, and not, this isn't universal or whatever, but I think all Christians should look at this and think, you know, I should probably think dialectically. Right. Yeah. I, I think I should look at the world and try to recognize the goods and the bads. of. And what's another way of saying that? Because I, I, I philosophically, obviously, I love, you know, calling it a dialectic. I think Gilkey names it a, a vertical dialectic and Niebuhr. I love that way of saying it. But how do we say it practically or how do we say it uh, theologically? That we're in the image of God, but we're sinners. You know, I think. uh so my wife often quotes Cornell West, this one quote by Cornell West to me, where Cornell West says, in the end, we're all redeemed by God with with gangster proclivities. He says something like that. He said, um, we're all children of God with gangster proclivities. I think he always says, I'm a I'm a redeemed sinner with gangster proclivities. That's it. That's what it is. I'm a redeemed sinner with gangster proclivities. That's the dialectic is that. We've been given grace. We have great capacity for doing good here. But in that same freedom that we have the capacity for good, we have the capacity for great harm, great evil. You know, that's the dialectic, you know, uh, that Christianity is born in, but Ju Judaism is born in, you know. So yeah, beautiful. Any last words? All right. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Love Thy Neighbor. Like, subscribe, write us a good review, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor. Check out my water bottle I posted on there. They might be for sale soon. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Take care. Stay safe out there.